This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Life is short. And every one of us in our lifetimes tries to find a place in this world and make our mark on it. And when it's all over, perhaps if we've done something noteworthy, there will be others who choose to celebrate our lives and remember them. Sometimes people will keep a record of what a dying individual's last words were, perhaps just out of sheer remembrance, or in the hope that others can glean some final insight into who they were as a person, or perhaps even to catch a glimpse of where they were going as they gave out their final breath. Joseph Wright, a linguist who edited the English Dialect Dictionary, summed up his life by uttering the word dictionary just before dying. Gustav Mahler cried out the name Mozart as he shuffled off this mortal coil. Nostradamus gave his most succinct and accurate prediction on his deathbed when he declared he would no longer be here tomorrow. William Henry Seward, the U.S. Secretary of State who arranged the Alaska Purchase, was asked if he had any final words, only to reply, Nothing. Only love one another. Of course, not everyone gets a chance to utter any last words of such eloquence. Elvis Presley's purported last words to anyone was an announcement that he was going to the bathroom. The very same bathroom where he was later found dead. Sadly, though, there are plenty of people who die without anyone to record their last words at all. Their words and their lives just fade from memory. Lost forever to the echoes of time. One event, though, where you can be almost certain to have everyone's attention is an execution. No one knows exactly when executioners began granting condemned prisoners a chance to speak their final words. Although it's been surmised that this was done as a way to keep the prisoner calm in their final moments. It hasn't always worked, though. On May 16, 1879, a convicted murderer named Wallace Wilkerson chose to be executed by firing squad over decapitation or the hangman's noose. On the day of his execution, he was reportedly allowed to smoke a cigar and declined to be blindfolded. Then he said, I give you my word, I intend to die like a man, looking my executioners right in the eye. But after the firing squad was given the signal, the initial shots failed to kill the man outright. Instead, Wilkerson leaped out of his chair, screaming in agony that the men had missed his heart. He died badly, struggling for life for nearly the next half hour. In 1921, a man named Grover Cleveland Redding was sentenced to death for starting an anti-government riot. Right before he was executed, he declared, I have something to say, but not at this time. He never got a chance to finish his thoughts. In 1995, Thomas Grasso was sentenced to death for the murders of an elderly man and woman during separate robberies. For his last meal, he ate four dozen steamed clams and mussels, a Burger King double cheeseburger, a half dozen barbecued spare ribs, and two strawberry milkshakes. He spent his last words complaining that the prison staff substituted his requested SpaghettiOs for regular spaghetti. A few condemned prisoners chose to go out of this world with a laugh. 
1958, a man named James French, who murdered a driver while hitchhiking, reportedly sat in the electric chair. How about this for a headline for tomorrow's paper? French fries. Likewise, in 1928, convicted murderer George Apple declared on the hot seat, Well, gentlemen, you're about to see a baked apple. In 1992, a man named Robert Alton Harris, who in 1978, along with his brother Daniel, abducted and murdered two teenage boys, decided to go to the gas chamber with a poetic turn of phrase. Harris's final words were, You can be a king or a street sweeper, but everyone dances with the Grim Reaper. Then there are the words uttered by a condemned prisoner back in London in 1892. Words that some people claim were cut short just as he was starting to confess to being one of the most infamous murderers in history. Thousands of people gathered outside the gates of London's Newgate Prison on November 15, 1892. Public executions were ended back in 1868, which meant the crowd wouldn't get to see the prisoner hang firsthand. But they were still more than willing to stand around and cheer once word came that the deed was done. The condemned man was a former physician named Dr. Thomas Neal Cream, although he often insisted he be referred to as Dr. Thomas Neal. The years had not been kind to Dr. Cream. He was mostly bald and stoop-shouldered. He had been cross-eyed since he was a child, and now those eyes were sunken, his skin pale and wrinkled. He appeared considerably older than his 42 years. Before his final arrest that would lead to his execution, the man had been a heavy drug user. He had always been odd, even as a child. His parents had identified a wildness in him that they couldn't tame. So they sent him abroad when he was young, hoping the trip would calm him down. Instead, he went on to become a serial killer of women long before the term had been invented. Dr. Cream was quiet and resolute as they led him to the gallows. As Hangman James Billington grasped the lever that would open the hatch below the man's feet, sending him plummeting to his death, it's been claimed that Dr. Cream was cut short just as he was making a final startling confession. Those final words were, I am Jack the. He never got a chance to say anything more, though, as the trapdoor opened and he plummeted through the opening, snapping his neck instantly. And although there are plenty of doubters about the incident, there are those today who insist that what Dr. Thomas Neal Cream was in the middle of saying was confessing to be the most famous serial killer of all, Jack the Ripper. I'm Nate Hale, and I'm Batman, and this is The Conspirators. There's something about London and murder that go hand in hand. As early as the Victorian era, the citizens of London were fascinated with true crime. The more gruesome, the better. This may be because stories of murder and mayhem were considered a decadent outlet for a society of people that were expected to act prim and proper throughout their daily lives. Whatever the reason may be, Victorian Londoners couldn't get enough of the stuff. Murder mysteries flew off the shelves. Plays were produced to packed houses about death and comeuppance. And actual murder scenes became top tourist destinations. In 1835, a sculptor named Marie Tussaud became a big success when she opened a wax museum called the Chamber of Horrors. 
There were even people who sold souvenir figurines on street corners depicting famous killers and their victims. During the 19th century, one London news dealer summed it up best by saying, Nothing beats a stunning good murder. One of the primary sources of true crime tales came from the daily newspapers. The London papers were in such heated competition with one another over who could publish the bloodiest murder stories that some of them would actually post apologies if the day's crimes weren't all that interesting. For example, in 1861, The Spectator once published a summary of the week's murders. These included a couple women who poisoned their children, a story of a fatal abortion, a landlady murdered by her tenant, and a man accused of attempted murder after getting into a violent argument with his son. The article ended by saying, The week has been a dull one. This was the atmosphere in the city during the latter half of 1888 when a madman calling himself Jack the Ripper brutally murdered five women in London's Whitechapel district. One side note, you'll often see those five canonical Ripper victims lumped together as prostitutes. Although historian Hallie Rubenhold makes a powerful case in her book The Five, that three of those victims weren't involved in the sex trade at all. London's newspapers were in no small part responsible for why there was so much misinformation spread about and why we all know the name Jack the Ripper today. There was a veritable feeding frenzy in the public for information about the Ripper's murders, and the city's newspaper reporters were more than willing to do whatever it took to sell papers. Even if a lot of what they reported wasn't actually true. In fact, there's evidence that at least some of the letters purportedly sent to the authorities by the Ripper were actually written by some overzealous newspaper reporters hoping to keep the story alive. But... This isn't the story of Jack the Ripper. Not really. That's a subject for another episode. Dr. Thomas Neal Cream was tried and convicted of his own string of murders just four years after Jack the Ripper's crimes came to a sudden end. Which is just one of the reasons why Dr. Cream has ended up on the very long list of Ripper suspects. Although many Ripperologists don't consider Cream to be a very likely suspect today even if some say he did appear to confess to being Jack on the gallows, but we'll get there. Cream was born in Glasgow, Scotland on May 27, 1850, although his family moved to Quebec City in Canada just four years later. It was there that Cream's father, William, became manager of a shipbuilding and lumber firm that made him very wealthy. Thomas Neil Cream was the oldest of eight siblings. As the oldest, Cream was expected to follow in his father's footsteps, He did actually apprentice in the shipbuilding trade for a short while, but Cream had no affinity for the worlds of shipbuilding or lumber. He attended the now-defunct La Chute Academy before finishing his studies at McGill University in Montreal where he received his medical degree. During college, he earned a reputation among his classmates as being wild and extravagant. He was quick to flash his wealth and he liked to dress in fancy clothes, wear gaudy jewelry, and ride around in the finest carriages. In his early years, his family fortune helped him get a good education and travel around a lot. Although historical records indicate his own parents may have been glad to be rid of him by sending him away. They had noticed early on what they referred to as a wildness in their son, 
although today we might refer to that wildness as signs of him being a sociopath. Dr. Cream got his postgraduate training at St. Thomas's Hospital Medical School in London. In 1878, he obtained further qualifications as a physician and surgeon in Edinburgh. He then returned to North America, where he began practicing as a physician, first in Des Moines, Iowa, and then later settling in London, Ontario. Truth be told, despite all his elite medical training, Dr. Cream was a pretty terrible doctor. He became addicted to drugs, and pretty early on he began offering back-alley abortion services wherever he set up shop. In 1876, he would go on to marry a woman named Flora Brooks, whom he had impregnated and nearly killed while aborting their baby. It became a proverbial shotgun wedding after Flora's father tracked Cream down upon learning what he had done and threatened Cream at gunpoint that either make an honest woman out of her or die. The day after the nuptials were complete, Cream traveled to London where he continued his medical studies. Flora died the following year. Her official cause of death was listed as consumption. Although Flora's own doctor wondered if her death might have something to do with a care package of special medicine her husband sent to her. Although he never pursued the matter further, he later admitted after Cream was arrested that he always suspected the man of foul play. In August 1879, a woman named Kate Gardner, with whom Dr. Cream had been alleged to have had an affair with, was found dead. Cream made the bold claim that he had nothing to do with the woman's death. This despite the facts that her body was discovered in an outhouse behind Cream's office, she was pregnant, and that whoever had murdered her had suffocated her to death using chloroform. It should be noted that Dr. Cream actually gave his thesis at McGill University on the use of chloroform, which, despite what TV and the movies will tell you, is way more likely to kill you than simply knocking you out by shoving a chloroform-soaked rag over your mouth. Cream told authorities that he thought Gardner had been impregnated by a local businessman. He admitted she had come to his office looking for an abortion, but he steadfastly refused to perform such an illegal procedure. He told police he suspected she must have then decided to commit suicide. Investigators didn't buy his story one bit, although they didn't have sufficient evidence to charge him with a crime. The suspicion ruined Cream's medical practice, though. With the heat on, Cream packed up and fled to the United States. As you might be able to tell, Cream was a pretty reckless murderer, and not a particularly cunning one. This was likely in part because during his medical career, he became addicted to the pills he dispensed to his patients, and was often seen popping them like candy throughout the day. He next settled in Chicago where he set up a medical practice near a red light district. This allowed him a steady stream of customers as he began once again performing back-alley abortions for the local sex workers. In August 1880, he was investigated for the death of a woman named Marianne Faulkner, although he once again managed to evade prosecution due to lack of evidence. In December 1880, another one of Dr. Cream's patients named Ellen Stack died during a procedure. During that incident, Dr. Cream was caught attempting to blackmail the pharmacist, who had filled the woman's prescription. The pharmacist informed the police of what Cream was doing, although no charges were brought against him. In April 1881, another woman named Alice Montgomery was found dead of strychnine poisoning. She too showed evidence of a recent botched abortion. 
The fact that she was living in a rooming house just a few doors down from Cream's office makes the doctor a strong suspect for her death. Although police never charged him with the crime and officially her murder remains unsolved. Strychnine is a highly deadly poison derived from the seeds of some plants that was first identified back in 1818. Chemists classified strychnine as an alkaloid, a nitrogen atom containing compound that puts it in the same class as morphine, nicotine, cocaine, and caffeine. Although its primary official use is as a pesticide to kill rats, strychnine became a favorite poison among a lot of mystery writers. Sherlock Holmes deduced that strychnine was the poison used in the book The Sign of the Four. Agatha Christie used strychnine as the murder weapon in her book The Mysterious Affair at Styles. Even Norman Bates in Psycho used strychnine to murder his mother before preserving her corpse. In 1881, Cream finally slipped up enough to get himself arrested. This was for the murder of a 61-year-old man named Daniel Stott. He had been married to a 33-year-old woman named Julia, with whom Cream began having an affair after she began visiting him to pick up some pills Cream was selling that he claimed could cure epilepsy. Cream convinced Julia to take out a life insurance policy on her husband. Then he gave her some pills full of strychnine that he instructed her to give to her husband. Stott was dead within minutes of swallowing them. At first, doctors reported Stott's death as a result of an epileptic seizure, but Cream had a way of being his own worst enemy. He raised his own suspicions after he sent a letter to the coroner accusing the chemists, who had compounded Stott's prescription, of botching the job. Cream even attempted to sue the chemists on Julia's behalf. Although the coroner didn't put any stock in Cream's accusations against the chemist, it did make him suspicious enough to go to the district attorney, who then went on to exhume Stott's body. It was discovered that Stott had enough strychnine in his system to murder a man three times his size. The DA immediately charged Cream with second-degree murder. Cream was found guilty and sentenced to life in the Illinois State Penitentiary. Although Cream was originally given a life sentence, he was released from prison in June 1891. His sentence had been reduced to 17 years, during which time he earned an early parole. One rumor claimed Cream's family had bribed officials all the way to the governor's mansion to gain his early release. The fact that Cream was supposed to be in prison in 1888 is the primary reason most Jack the Ripper experts point to why he couldn't possibly be the legendary murderer. Although there were a few rogue Ripperologists who came up with a theory that Cream's family actually bribed prison officials into letting him out a few years earlier than everyone believed. Then the corrupt prison officials hid this fact until Cream's official release in 1891. According to this elaborate theory, Cream fled to London earlier than believed, where he began murdering women in Whitechapel and sending taunting letters to the authorities signed Jack the Ripper. But besides the fact that records do indicate Dr. Cream served his sentence all the way to 1891, another big problem with this theory is that the crimes of Jack the Ripper don't exactly line up with Dr. Cream's known modus operandi. It's true many people who have investigated Jack the Ripper suspected he had medical training, which would indeed match with Dr. Cream. He and Jack also both shared a strange affinity for sending letters to the authorities, although the Ripper's letters were used to taunt police how they would never catch him. Cream's letters were typically written to cast suspicion of his crimes on someone else. 
Besides that, Jack the Ripper used a knife on his victims, while Thomas Neal Cream preferred poison to murder women. There are really many reasons to listen to our podcast, Big Picture Science. It's kind of a challenge to summarize them all, Molly. Okay, here's a reason to listen to our show, Big Picture Science, because you love to be surprised by science news. We love to be surprised by science news. So, for instance, I learned on our own show that I had been driving around with precious metals in my truck before it was stolen. That was brought up in our show about precious metals and also rare metals, like most of the things in your catalytic converter. I was surprised to learn that we may begin naming heat waves like we do hurricanes. You know, prepare yourself for heat wave Lucifer. I don't think I can prepare myself for that. Look, we like surprising our listeners. We like surprising ourselves by reporting new developments in science and while asking the big picture questions about why they matter and how they will affect our lives today and in the future. Well, we can't affect lives in the past, right? No, I I guess that's a point. (laughs) So the podcast is called Big Picture Science and You can hear it wherever you get your podcasts. We are the hosts. Seth is a scientist. I'm a science journalist. And we talk to people smarter than us. We hope you'll take a listen. Dr. Cream will go on to earn the nickname the Lambeth Poisoner in the British press after the Lambeth neighborhood where he next set up shop. On October 7th, 1891, Cream arrived in Lambeth. Like Whitechapel, this was another one of London's largest slums. It was a crime-ridden neighborhood full of grimy factories churning out stomach-churning black smoke. It was also a neighborhood Dr. Cream was well acquainted with. The rooming house he rented stood directly opposite St. Thomas's Hospital, where he had served as a medical student years earlier. In the years since Cream had last been to London, there was at least one new building that had been erected not too far away. It was a large red-and-white brick building that was the new home of the Metropolitan Police, a.k.a. Scotland Yard. Both the London police and the general public were in a transformative period when it came to crime. As I mentioned earlier, the public had a broad appetite for tales of murder and mayhem. But something happened in 1887 that quickly changed the public's perceptions on true crime. That was the year Sir Arthur Conan Doyle published his very first Sherlock Holmes story. To say that Holmes caused a public sensation would be an understatement. The character was like the Harry Potter of his day. Only instead of introducing people to the world of witchcraft and wizardry, Holmes showed the public a side of murder they hadn't seen before. Prior to the first appearance of Holmes, most murder stories were sensationalistic tales that emphasized the gruesome details of the crime. And while that still continued, the Sherlock Holmes stories created a new interest in people who loved the idea that crime could be solved through clever deduction and careful observation. It also helped cement the idea in the public's mind that the police were nothing but a bunch of bumbling fools. Of course, Scotland Yard hated the public's low perception of them. Even though, to be honest, they earned some of that reputation on their own. At the time, most London police were hired right off the street and given just a few days' training before given a uniform and a beat to patrol. But at the same time, within Scotland Yard, there were still some seasoned officers who sought to modernize the police and turn the yard into a more efficient and professionally run operation. There was an active effort among some detectives to modernize how crimes were being investigated. 
Things like adopting the classification system that kept records of physical characteristics of criminal offenders, including fingerprints, that was cooked up by a French police clerk named Alphonse Bertillon. But all that modernization didn't prevent Dr. Thomas Neal Cream from slipping under the police's radar and getting away with murder for quite some time after he settled in Lambeth. Dr. Cream moved to Lambeth not only because it was familiar territory, but also because he knew it would prove to be a perfect hunting ground for vulnerable women. As one of London's poorest districts, Lambeth also had an overabundance of prostitutes walking the streets. Many of the city's brothels were in this neighborhood, and any given night you could find countless numbers of what the papers dubbed the city's unfortunates, which was their coy term for sex workers. Cream had long had an irrational hatred of women who turned to the world's oldest profession. His own family noticed early on the man's particular derangement, especially when it came to the topic of prostitutes. There was one incident back in 1887 where he was staying with his brother Daniel back in Quebec City, when Dr. Cream, who at the time began ordering everyone to refer to him as Thomas Neal, flew into a rage and began screaming at his sister Mary, calling her a lowly streetwalker and a liar. Even after the shouting match concluded, Cream held on to his grudge and sent off a series of nasty letters to several of his sister's friends accusing her of being a prostitute. It was this incident that helped spur Dr. Cream's siblings to urge him to leave Quebec City and go far away to London to complete his medical training. That way, he wouldn't be their problem anymore. People who knew Cream personally said he was always unpleasant to be around. He was nervous and fidgety, and always chewing something, be it gum, tobacco, or the end of a cigar. Over time, these habits only grew worse and more disagreeable as the man turned to taking large doses of a combination of cocaine, morphine, and even a low dose of strychnine to calm his fraying nerves. One acquaintances of Creams would later describe the man's vicious and narcissistic personality as such. Everything always had a center around himself and his own instant gratification. As the acquaintance described it, Dr. Cream's tastes and habits were of the most depraved order. Less than a week after Dr. Cream came to Lambeth, people began to learn just how depraved he was. October 13, 1891 was a miserable rainy night. A man named James Stiles was, was standing outside a pub near Lambeth's Waterloo Station when he noticed a woman named Ellen Donworth step away from a nearby public house and take a nasty tumble to the pavement. Stiles and a passing Bobby rushed over to his sister. At first, the two men assumed Donworth was drunk, but it quickly became apparent she was unwell in some other way. She was clearly in a great deal of pain. Stiles helped walk her to her rooming house. He and Donworth's landlady helped put her to bed. Stiles noticed the unnerving way the woman's muscles spasmed, causing her entire body to shake furiously. Donworth told him that a tall, dark, cross-eyed man gave her something to drink from a bottle containing some sort of white compound. A medical assistant named John Johnson arrived at the rooming house to examine Ellen Donworth. He realized the woman was suffering from clear symptoms of strychnine poisoning. Johnson tried to usher Donworth into a cab to rush her to the hospital. Donworth protested at first, but finally allowed herself to be placed in the cab. But by the time the cab reached St. Thomas's Hospital, she was dead. Despite Johnson's suspicions Donworth had been poisoned, at first the autopsy revealed no obvious cause of death. 
but an examination of the woman's stomach contents revealed traces of strychnine and morphine. When police questioned Donworth's associates, they learned she had indeed been a prostitute, a trade she began when she was 16 after being forced to live on the streets. At the time she was murdered, she was only 19 years old. A friend named Annie Clemson told investigators that Donworth had received two letters from the same mysterious man who gave her the drink believed to have been the source of the poison. Although police were unable to find those letters among Donworth's possessions, Clemson thought the man might have asked for them back when they finally met. It was right around the same time that the coroner, George Wyatt, received his own strange letter. It read, I am writing to say that if you and your satellites fail to bring the murderer of Ellen Donworth, alias Ellen Lionel, late of 8 Duke Street, to justice, I am willing to give you such assistance as will bring the murderer to justice, provided your government is willing to pay me £300,000 for my services. No pay unless successful. It was signed by someone calling himself A. O'Brien, detective. Wyatt assumed the letter was some sort of odd prank. After all, £300,000 was a ridiculous sum, amounting to tens of millions of pounds in today's money. Wyatt filed the letter away and forgot about it. Right around the same time, the owner of a series of bookstalls received his own strange letter. This one accusing him of Donworth's murder and demanding money for his silence. On October 20th, a 27-year-old prostitute named Matilda Clover became the next to die. Like Donworth, she fell mysteriously ill with convulsions, then died. At first, her death was attributed to her alcoholism by the police. But then a prominent physician named Dr. William Broadbent received a threatening letter accusing him of poisoning Clover and demanding cash. Broadbent sent the letter to Scotland Yard, who decided to take another look at the woman's death. It turns out, she too had been poisoned. Dr. Cream returned to Canada for a few months after that to stay with his family. But by April 1892, he was back in London. On April 2nd, he met a woman named Louise Harvey in an alleyway and attempted to convince her to swallow two pills. But Harvey had the good sense to only pretend to swallow them. She later told police the man looked incredulous when it appeared she had swallowed the pills yet suffered no ill effects. She later tossed the pills away into the River Thames. On April 11th, Cream met a pair of sex workers, 21-year-old Alice Marsh and 18-year-old Emma Shrivel. He talked them into taking them back to the flat they shared, where he offered them a bottle of Guinness. Cream left shortly after, watching the women take a drink. Both of them died in agony. It's quite possible Dr. Cream could have gotten away with his crimes much longer than he did if he didn't get in his own way and succumb to his massive ego. The police likely would have never taken a second look at some of these deaths and tied them together had the man not sent out a series of letters attempting to extort money from people and also attempting to draw suspicion away from himself. By the time it was clear there was a single murderer committing all these crimes, the newspapers had dubbed him the Lambeth Poisoner. In fact, Matilda Clover's death might not have been connected at all since her official cause of death was listed as alcoholism. But then one of the anonymous letters that were sent described Clover's death as a murder and included details only someone with intimate knowledge of the crime would know. It wasn't long before investigators realized that all these extortion letters, along with the strange letter from the mysterious A. O'Brien that Coroner Wyatt received, were all written by the same man. 
Not long after, Cream made another outrageously bold move when he made the acquaintance of a New York detective who was visiting London. Cream actually began telling the detective about the Lambeth Poisoner, and even led him on a brief tour of where the victims lived. Later, the American detective mentioned this strange encounter to a British policeman, which soon propelled Dr. Cream to the top of the suspect list. The police at Scotland Yard put Cream under surveillance and they soon learned of the man's predilection for hiring prostitutes. They also sent an inquiry back to the United States only to learn of his prior conviction for the murder by poison of Daniel Stott. On June 3, 1892, police decided to arrest Dr. Cream. On July 13th, he was formally charged with the murders of Clover, Donworth, Marsh, and Shrivel, as well as the attempted murder of Harvey and for several counts of attempted extortion. Throughout his arrest, Dr. Cream raised such a fuss that everyone needed to refer to him as Dr. Thomas Neal, that even the British press picked up on it and began calling him Dr. Neal, the Lambeth Poisoner. His trial lasted for four days from October 17th to the 21st. The jury only deliberated for 12 minutes before finding him guilty on all counts. He was immediately sentenced to death. Dr. Cream was hanged less than a month later on November 15th at Newgate Prison. It was his hangman, James Billington, who helped promote the idea that Cream's last words were, I am Jack the, before being cut short. But this claim was not substantiated by others who attended the execution and made no mention of it later. This hasn't stopped a few ripperologists from insisting the man really was Jack the Ripper. But as I mentioned, there's just not a lot of evidence to support this theory. In fact, one alternate theory put forth by one of Cream's biographers was that Billington misheard Cream's final words, and that the man was actually describing his nervous loss of bodily functions during his final seconds, and was actually saying, I am ejaculating, which I'm just going to leave right there. One final side note about the way Jack the Ripper's story intersected with Dr. Cream. One lesser reported fact about Jack the Ripper is that long after the Ripper's murders appeared to conclude in 1888, letters purportedly written by the murderer continued to be sent to police and the newspapers. Most Ripperologists believe the vast majority of these letters to be nothing but hoaxes. One of these letters signed by Jack the Ripper was actually introduced as evidence in a July 1892 inquest into Dr. Cream's guilt. In this letter... Jack the Ripper actually declared that Dr. Neal was innocent of all the murders, and that it was actually he who had perpetrated these crimes. It's pretty safe to assume that Dr. Cream wrote this letter himself. No one took it the least bit seriously. In fact, when the letter was read into evidence, everyone, including Dr. Cream, got a big laugh out of it. The Conspirators is written and produced by me, Nate Hale, an entirely fictional identity. Thanks so much for listening. If you're interested in learning more about Dr. Cream or lots about Victorian London's history with true crime, then I highly recommend you check out The Case of the Murderous Dr. Cream by Dean Job. It's a really great and highly entertaining book. I have a new Patreon supporter to thank. Thank you to Andrew for signing up and helping support the show. Just a reminder that patrons of the show get access to all sorts of bonuses, including stickers, magnets, t-shirts, and access to our ever-growing library of bonus mini-episodes. If you'd like to become a patron to the show, I'll put a link in the show notes. 
Another great way you can help support The Conspirators is to subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple Podcast. Each one of your ratings and reviews helps boost us in Apple Charts and spreads the love to more people. If you're not an Apple, not to worry. You can also find us on Spotify, Stitcher, and most of the other places you get your podcasts. We also have a website, theconspiratorspodcast.com, where you can listen to our entire bad catalog of shows. I also encourage you to reach out and follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can even send me an email at theconspiratorspodcast at gmail.com and let us know how we're doing. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll be back next time.